Hello, in the beginning there was a big bang which led me to the creation of brief history of time. Now from beyond the grave. Woo-hoo-hoo-hoo-hoo-hoo-hoo-hoo-hoo-hoo-hoo-hoo-hoo-hoo-hoo-hoo-hoo-hoo-hoo-hoo-hoo-hoo-hoo-hoo-hoo-
and we'll get to the to the scores later on but i already know what i gave this movie i'm more intrigued to to learn what you thought of of this film because i i know that you've seen carpenter before uh, you've, you've seen the mm-hmm. thing one of yeah. his ultimate classics and the thing was a science fiction movie we're dealing with another science fiction movie and they live sci-fi action horror so how did you get on in all honesty i thought it was um it was going to be one of these uh films where it's so bad it's good now it you know it, it definitely had the the sort of feel of a cult classic kind of thing but um i didn't quite have any I, I didn't have i had almost no background knowledge apart from the sort of brief description you had given me about what it was about and it was for me it was 15 20 minutes at the start of the film of roddy piper looking off into the distance with or without his shirt on and i, I just i didn't get it and i kind of forgot what the film was what, what the film was supposed to be about but I thought the actual concept of the film was actually quite interesting and it is and it was quite good you know the whole idea of by the way spoilers you've been warned if you've not listened to any episodes beforehand you always get a spoiler warning so spoilers we're going to talk about everything or not everything but a lot of things in great detail so this will spoil things if you haven't seen it yet spoiler but spoiler. you know the, the idea of glasses kind of showing things for what they are I thought was quite interesting the fact that there's like a like a sort of alien race of the rich and powerful kind of pull on the strings and stuff i find that as an interesting conspiracy theory which i've heard about in you know you know over the years you know that there's reptile people or lizard people and you know they're <laughs> kind of in control and stuff like that which i always love it was things like the pacing and like the alley fight scene that just you know things like that just went on for too long and i get it like you do you do sometimes need to take your time going into a film because you need to you need to explain things or you know set the scene or you know kind of get things ready but like i said it was just roddy piper sauntering about los angeles in double denim not really doing very much for quite a while double then. and then denim. it all kicked double denim and then it all kind of kicks off and he's like a gun toting uh, action hero and like fighting people in alleyways and stuff but I, I quite I still kind of liked it there was bits of it I really liked and like I said the concept the idea of the film I thought was really quite good and really interesting but it's definitely a product of its time like it's 80s out the wazoo it sounds straight off the bat that you struggled to get into this movie and a wee bit. I feel that you're holding back. I think you I think you want you said you said that you were hoping <laughs> that this was gonna be a film that was so bad it's good. It sounds like you're saying this is a film that's so bad it remains bad. Now, here's the thing. Now, my friends and I, towards the end of high school, would have bad movie nights. So we would watch things like uh, Mega Shark versus Giant Octopus. It was usually one gigantic animal versus another gigantic animal and all the terrible CGI that came along with it. So we've, we've watched bad movies and we've watched movies that are so bad they are good. But we've also watched the film, and I'll go on record right now to tell you, the film Trolls 2 is so so bad that it pains me to even talk about it like that film is so bad it 
surpasses all other badness. So yeah, I've seen Trolls too. You've seen Trolls too, like so. You you understand that it makes zero sense and it is awful. And it has nothing to do with the original movie. Well, this is it. We haven't even seen Trolls one, but we thought, oh, I'm sure there's not an intricate plot line to follow. Maybe we can just stick it on. And then when we watched it and it made no sense, we were like, oh, <laughs> maybe we do need to watch the first one because that was all over the place. Now they live. I would say is so bad that it's good, but I watched this with my partner, Stone Cold Sober. I reckon if I was maybe watching it either with Laura or my mates, and I was had about three or four beers, I reckon this film would be hysterical and maybe quite good as well. Uh, well, not maybe quite good, like it's still, like I said, there are parts of it which are good, but I think I might have maybe gotten into it more yeah. if alcohol is involved like it's kind of hard to it's kind of hard to gauge but it's not so bad that it's bad it is for me for me personally it is so bad that it's good it sounds like you perhaps needed a better environment for the movie yes yeah i think so i think you're right in in dealing with this film okay the i'll just break down the for those of you who have watched it or those of you that haven't watched it get it watched and i'm just going to break down what the the film is actually about and it's it's quite good to get the the opinion uh from from duke going in because this is a film that i've revisited several times nada john nada played by rowdy roddy piper for people will remember from wwe or wwf days Nada, a down-on-his-luck construction worker, discovers a pair of special sunglasses. Wearing them, he's able to see the world as it really is. People being bombarded by media and government with messages like Stay asleep. No imagination. Submit to authority. Even scarier is that he is able to see that some usually normal-looking people are in fact ugly aliens in charge of the massive campaign to keep humans subdued. And therefore, it is up to Nada to awaken all of us to the truth. Did Bob make you go to John and Mary Ellen's last night? I was shocked. She served blue corn tortillas. <laughs> it's so dated. <laughs> So depressed. I don't know what to do. Hey, go for it, man. It's easy for you to say you got the promotion. So it'll come, all right? Just don't worry about it. The feeling is definitely there. It's a new morning in America. Fresh, vital. The old cynicism is gone. We have faith in our leaders. We're optimistic as to what becomes of it all. It really boils down to our ability to accept. We don't need pessimism. There are no limits. <laughs> it we figures it would be something like this. Our nation, our ideal, oh. vision. Excuse me. Just survive. You know, you look succeed. like you had fell on the cheese dip back in 1957. <gasps> oh. You, you're okay. This one, real fucking ugly. You see, I take these glasses off. She looks like a regular person, doesn't she, huh? Put them back on. Formaldehyde face. That's what That's we got. That's enough out of you. 
You get out or I call the cops. Call the cops? You know what you need? You need a Brazilian plastic surgeon. I've got one that can see. Uh, he's a tall Caucasian male. Doesn't appear armed. Wearing sunglasses. I don't like this one. Bit. Not one bit. We're at the tail end of the 80s, 1988. We're dealing with director, writer John Carpenter. Now, Carpenter actually used a pseudonym for his for his screenplay. Um, if you actually look at the credits, it says written by Frank Armitage. That's just one of many pseudonyms that John Carpenter uses. I don't. I don't know. Oh. I don't know why. It possibly might be to do with pay if you have a a different name or a, for for an additional credit rather than saying written and directed by John Carpenter it might actually just come down to the fact that he gets more money if uh, for a directing credit and then for perhaps a separate writing credit but Oh. I'm not entirely clued up on that, but when it when okay. it says Frank Armitage, Frank Armitage is John Carpenter, so he wrote the screenplay, and the film itself is based on a short story by Real, Ray Nelson called Eight O'clock in the Morning, and the film is mainly based not necessarily on the short story, but on the '80s graphic novel that came out about Eight O'clock in the Morning. And this should have been the fifth movie that Carpenter uh, did with uh, Kurt Russell. Kurt Russell mm. is widely regarded as Carpenter's kind of leading man. He played Elvis in the Elvis biop in 1979. He was Snake Plissken, the legend in Escape from New mm -hmm. York. He was McCready in The Thing. Um, he was in big trouble in little china as the the truck driver and he was going to be playing nada but he turned around to john carpenter and simply said i think you need to give somebody else a shot kurt russell wouldn't oh. work with with john carpenter again until 96 for escape from la which pretty much is just a kind of remake of escape from new york just set in LA. Mm -hmm. I think he maybe just had enough of, uh, of of being Carpenter's kind of hero or leading man so he stepped aside and Carpenter had met Roddy Piper. He, Carpenter's a massive wrestling fan and he, he, oh, okay. he met Roddy Piper at Wrestlemania 3. The second he just saw his face up close I mean he knew who Roddy Piper was but Roddy, Roddy Piper's you know, he's he's not attractive, but he's not unattractive at the same time. But he's got one of these faces mm -hmm. that has seen everything and is quite yeah. scarred as well. And he really embodied what Carpenter wanted from from Nada, who is a homeless man who pretty much moves from place to place. He finds work where he can find work and he settles where he can settle. I mean, that's actually a re true reflection of the 80s, and if not the 80s America, spe specifically Los Angeles in the 80s, because mm -hmm. people, while they had jobs and they went to work, they didn't necessarily have homes to return to after work. They didn't necessarily 
have any real money because a lot of them would send their money to relatives or to a family that perhaps lived in another place. Then they would stay in kind of makeshift shanty towns uh, or hotels. And actually in the film, there is a, a shanty town that Nada ends up in along with, um, he kind of follows the character Frank played by the wonderful Keith David who was in the mm. thing as well. He follows Frank to this kind of shanty town. That's a, that's a real homeless town that they were using. That um, was oh, right. built. Uh, the vast majority of people that we we see in the background, they are real homeless people. So John Carpenter not only got them a payday for featuring in the movie, but he got them fed as well. He was kind of trying to give something back to them. Wow. Roddy Piper himself, I mean, he's lived in several cities across the world including glasgow which is one of the reasons that you know when we think of the rider Rudy piper he comes on and he's got his kilt and he's got these scottish oh, scottish yeah. connections but Roddy piper was homeless so he kind of knew what it was like to live on the streets mm -hmm. that for him was quite a traumatic time in his life and actually there's a scene in the movie when the shanty town is raided by the police and they start mm -hmm. to kind of break people down. And the reason that the, the homeless shanty town is raided is because it's really that's the, the aliens who have recognised that it's that area that the signal is coming from, the television signal that's trying to inform people yeah. of the truth. And it's, it's coming from a church. So the police go in, controlled obviously by the aliens, to break everything down, get rid of the resistance, destroy the TV signal. There's a shot, a close-up of, of Roddy Piper, and he, he, it's when he sees Frank run away. Not only has he kind of lost his friend, but he, he genuinely looks like quite hurt and quite broken. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's because... In that moment, he was really kind of taken back to when he lived on the streets and he mm -hmm. he was subjected to kind of brutality and that, that kind of way of life. And it, it really kind of hit home for him. It's interesting that in a film that is about aliens living in hiding who are controlling every part of society, there's still in this cheesy sci-fi action horror elements of realism yeah it's quite i i i quite like the fact that john carpenter involved the homeless community we don't expect amazing performances from wrestlers but i would argue that roddy piper kind of paved the way forward for wrestlers to break into movies with this film yeah i mean you definitely saw more of a trend um and i mean it still happens today i mean rock dwayne the rock johnson you know he's been in the, the jumanji films and like the baywatch reboot and i think he's in that tv series ballers and i think that's relatively popular but even like dave Batista as well yeah. he's like he, he was like one of the bond villains in is it Spectre? I mean, yeah. not the greatest film, but, you know, he was in a Bond film and, you know, he's Drax in uh, the Guardians of the Galaxy franchise, part of the Marvel films. So more than just, like, cameos and stuff, like, I know Hulk Hogan, you know, he played the odd cameo here and there and stuff like that. That's a good point, because, like, after after this movie, we actually, we get a couple from Hulk Hogan, things like uh, Suburban Commando and I think it's Mr. Nanny, and when you see kind of wrestlers in films, 
they tend to play themselves. So like Hulk, Hulk mm-hmm. Hogan was always Hulk Hogan in movies. Yeah, right? no. he might have had a character name, but he was he was always Hulk Hogan. Whereas here, I don't see Roddy Piper. I see, mm. I see him playing a character. I see him becoming and being nada. It's not the Roddy Piper. Perhaps, obviously, with the exception of the fight scene, <laughs> I think that he was allowed to kind of be himself because the person who who oversees the WWF, WWE, uh, Vince McMahon, and and now it's Vince McMahon Jr. We tend to call him Vince McMahon, but people forget that his dad started it all. So technically, he's Vince McMahon Jr. And Vince hmm. McMahon is is a, is an incredibly controlling personality. Right. He owns all the names of the wrestlers he actually comes up with all their kind of background details he he'll sit a wrestler he'll sit a wrestler down and he'll ask about their personality about what they've seen where they've been and he'll try and tailor something from his creative mind based around that if it doesn't work then he will completely just give you something totally random Okay, and that can work in your favor or not. So, like, see when the when Dwayne the Rock Johnson, when he first started appearing in films, he was billed as the Rock. If you actually looked mm-hmm. at the production credits, Vince McMahon was always a producer in the movies. He didn't do anything, but it's because he owned the, he uh. owned the name the Rock. So he he was actually giving permission. And he was gaining vast amounts of money because that's the kind of controlling person. That's what, that's what he, he wants. He just wants all the money in the world. Dwayne Johnson was under contract for several years that if, in order to get out of WrestleMania, sorry, to get in order for him to get out of WF, he had to complete so many movies and almost like pay Vince McMahon off. And that's why there then becomes a change and you see him become Dwayne Johnson. And it's yeah. and it's not uh-huh. and it's not the Rock or it's not Dwayne the Rock Johnson because because any, mm. anything build with the Rock, that means that Vince McMahon gets money. Right. Oh, okay? okay. And what's nice to see is like you mentioned, like you've got Dave Batista. These are two probably of the biggest, most well-known stars today, in action and comedy. Dave Bautista does comedy so mm-hmm. well from that wrestling world. But if you go back, I think you, I would argue that you possibly wouldn't have that. You wouldn't have these stars trying to break out if we hadn't had Roddy Piper kind of paving the way forward. Because if you look at the way the film is cast, or, or sorry, not the way the film is built, it's not Rowdy Roddy Piper because Vince McMahon mm. owns the name rowdy roddy paper so it's just it's just roddy paper it's just roddy paper right yeah. vince mcmahon didn't want him to make this movie all oh, right because if he made this movie vince mcmahon wouldn't get any money out of it he wouldn't get any royalties so Rod- yeah. roddy paper actually quit the wf to make this movie and wow. he, he completely oh, i did not realize he completely this. walked away from it for three years and then when he went back he actually went back with much more power because he was the one guy who stood up to his boss, Vince McMahon, mm-hmm. and said, no, because Vince McMahon said to him, look, if you want to do a horror sci-fi movie, I'll find you a horror sci-fi movie. Oh, right. And Roddy Piper okay. was like, 
you're not going to find me a horror sci-fi movie with John Carpenter directing. Mm-hmm. And so that was enough for Roddy Piper to say, do you know what? Nope. I'm I'm out of here. I'm I'm going to go and do this. Not only was that was that a great thing, because Vince McMahon is incredibly he is a control freak. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you, if everybody knows what he looks like, I mean, just Google Vince McMahon. I mean, he looks like a control <laughs> freak. If he can't control the situation, then that's where he. I don't think WrestleMania. Would, I keep saying WrestleMania. If he can't control everything, then WF wouldn't be where actually it is to today because he he kind of changed it from what his dad brought in to the massive money-making conglomerate corporation you know sucking hmm. machine that it is today <laughs> you know wrestlers are, are performers you know they follow scripts yeah okay yeah so it's nice to see that unlike someone like hulk hogan Roddy piper can actually be quite human so that's why i quite like mm-hmm. you know he's not he's not the great i'm not saying he's the greatest actor in the world but i, th- no. I think he he was a good fit for john nada yeah no i would i would totally agree and you you raise a good point that again he's not daniel day lewis or you know Heath ledger or anything like <laughs> that but you know he does, he does do a better job than just playing his character that he would you know in the wrestling ring without the name like he is you know he's trying and he does a little bit better just trying to play an actual character to act as it were yeah. so yeah no that that definitely that definitely came through see films like et or close encounters of the third kind you know i'm, I'm we're, we're talking two famous 80s science fiction movies directed by steven spielberg et friendly little alien who eats reese's pieces close encounters you know the <laughs> the ship comes down and they do the whole musical thing and communicate and everything's very very nice what do you make of sci-fi movies like that the kind of cutesy stuff it's good as a family film and you know i I guess that's kind of what spielberg was kind of going for i mean i think these films had the success that they they had because it had the sort of sci-fi element but it was accessible to kind of all ages like people would go to the cinema as a family to watch these films you wouldn't take your four-year-old toddler to go see the xenomorphs in any of the alien films um, or go see, you know, go see Predator with Schwarzenegger running about a jungle. There's different kind of sci-fi, and it isn't always necessarily sci-fi and horror. Sometimes it's more just kind of the situation, and you don't you don't really put it under another subcategory. Sometimes it's just a sci-fi film. Yeah. But you know, th- those were made in the same sort of decade, so you know there was similar looks in terms of like you know things, pop culture references, and things that were around at the time, and hairstyles, and the way people dressed, and you know the soundtracks, and you know production value, stuff like that. But you know they are they're quite different, and I think maybe with maybe I'm thinking obviously John Carpenter under a pseudonym even though he was you know he was writing a sci-fi film this was not aimed this was not aimed at families mm-hmm. at all yeah. it, it had it had quite a strong message it definitely had a strong message of you know try and think for yourself and you know don't just give in to what you're told and you know things like that which to be honest is you know applicable even today with the internet and stuff like that but yeah no there was definitely a clear message and i mean i think the aliens and the aliens in this were a bit more humanoid. They definitely weren't. <laughs> they definitely weren't ET, but they weren't 
trying to lay eggs and burst out your chest at the same time either yeah. they were just kind of it was almost like mars attack actually they almost looked like the aliens from mars attack but without like their heads were a bit smaller right yeah so the the the, the general look of the aliens of in in, mm-hmm. in they live is it's like a, a human skull stripped back of the skin yeah so you can see the elements of the skull and you've got all the muscles and things like that but also they have these silver eyes that reflect everything and kind of mm-hmm. uh, you know reflect everything back at you which is quite quite sinister yeah. but yeah with, with them it's more about infiltration from the back door mm. yeah so that they're they're already here they're already embedded in society and they're already subduing us that's that's what they live mm-hmm. is about whereas with other stuff like et and things like that it, it's more about arrival early communication or survival and or, or rescue in the case of et yeah yeah i think what i'd quite like to know is what do you buy into do you prefer or do you buy into this idea of if aliens happen it's all Mm. it's all cutesy or do you prefer the kind of carpenter method or aliens are they're going to be controlling or they're is it like independence day where it just it's like a strike attack you know you've you've got you've mentioned you've got all these kind of like sub-genres within sci-fi but it's like, what what do you go for? Do you do you go for cutesy fan as <laughs> E.T. fingers Elliot gently? <laughs> um, uh, Phrasing. <laughs> and, and Elliot uh, bribes him with Reese's Pieces. Or, or, or do you go down with the, the chest bursting xenomorph? Do you... The much more aggressive evil side. I'm not going to go d- too far down the rabbit hole with this, but not to sound like I know more than anyone or to come across as if I'm an expert on anything, but I listened to, uh, I think I've recommended it before, uh, The End of the World with Josh Clark, and he talks, I think it's the first episode, he talks a lot about something called the Fermi Paradox, and I can't remember the guy's first name, but he was one of the guys who worked on the Manhattan Project, the American team that came up with a nuclear bomb. That's probably a gross mis-explanation but basically um, the, the idea that Fermi came up with is that there is actually no other intelligent life out there anymore. There used to be, there might have been millions of years ago but they came and they went and no one actually ever, none of the other species in any of the other parts of the universe ever came up with interstellar travel so they've never visited. Because the, the idea is that if any other species that may be or may not be like us, like we could maybe potentially not be able to even comprehend, the the thinking is that they would probably be so technologically advanced that they would have visited by now. Yeah. And it would most likely be something very difficult to hide. So we would be very more aware that aliens were here or that they had at least visited. And yeah, there, I mean, there's footage and there's unexplained things and there are ex- explained things like UFOs and encounters and stuff theories, like that. Who built the pyramids and all that. Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, watch the History Channel past seven o'clock, and it becomes less about history and more about conspiracy theories and how <laughs> the pyramids are warships sent here by the aliens and stuff like that. It's great, but for me personally, it's kind of hard to gauge because I subscribe a little bit more to that. I know it sounds like a bit of an ignorant thing to say, but if there was any evidence of aliens having visited us or being with us 
I would imagine it would be a little bit more difficult to keep under wraps, but maybe it could be like the film. You know, maybe they are wanting to stay... Maybe it's not to, you know, pull the strings of society or capitalism. Maybe it's not anything like that, but, you know, maybe there's other reasons. Maybe it is an infiltration thing. Maybe, you know, maybe we're just like a massive science project for another (laughs) alien species and they're kind of like... All right, let's let's put these let's put these things in here and see what happens over the next three, four, five hundred years or whatever. I don't know. I mean, it's, it's not. It's, obviously, the, these things are widely talked about, and they they are conspiracy mm-hmm. theories. And you actually see this reflected in science fiction all the time. I mean, you only need to yeah. look as far as Star Trek because Star Trek and they will not interfere with a society that is not advanced yet that was mm. that was the same with humans so like the if you look at the movie first contact it's all about how first contact happened with the vulcans as soon as the vulcans were monitoring earth they were monitoring humans and as soon as they saw they got to a certain speed in terms of what they could travel at, travel faster than light, travel first faster, intergalactic space travel, whatever. That's when they decided they humans were advanced enough and that they could then start to share technology and announce who they were. In in Star Trek, there's lots of episodes where they are monitoring civilizations and they are they've got cloaking devices and they're hidden and as soon as they kind of either get to a certain stage or they've learned enough about a society that perhaps they're not going to be freaked out if they learn that there's other life out there, then they can start to communicate with them. Because there's a great episode where Picard is mistaken for a god and they refer refer to him as the Picard. They realise that he is actually just flesh and blood and he's not their god. But this idea that perhaps we've been infiltrated and that we've been asleep for a very long time. As, you know, sleep is one of the subliminal west messages that is 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 mm-hmm. all the way throughout the movie, along with obey. And in kind of Carpenter's world and that society, it's based around kind of capitalism because it, it is a very kind of political film because he shows us yeah. that the very wealthy are the ones that benefit, and obviously that mm-hmm. that's what happens with capitalism. So why not turn it on its head and it be that. If you work with the aliens, if you know about them, then you're one of the few that benefit from their kind of existence. I mean, if we look at Carpenter's kind of backlog, Carpenter, he reinvented horror with Halloween in 78. You know, mm-hmm. he created the slasher flick, the the teen mm-hmm. babysitter in uh, Jamie Lee Curtis. Everything that, you know, became staple into the 80s and 90s horror. Carpenter himself, you know, he's a rebel. He rebels against authority. You see that in his movies. He adores science fiction. He grew up in the 50s. And he, he's grown up watching films like like the, the original Thing, okay? The, the, th- mm-hmm. the Thing from Another Planet, Invasion of the, the Body Snatchers uh, in oh, nine, yeah, 1956. Yeah. Uh, with Kevin McCarthy he's very much kind of like I think making these types of movies that he grew up watching if you look at the thing it is a remake if you look mm-hmm. at if you look at they live I mean they live is is almost like a, a newer version or it's definitely inspired by invasion and the body snatchers with with the the aliens mm-hmm. kind of being with us but you know carpenter he never he doesn't buy into the cutesy alien idea I mean the the thing in 
mm. the thing it will find a host it will infiltrate that host and then it just takes out everybody else and that's special effects by Rob Botin or Botin sorry who we've, we've talked about before from having done the howling and yeah. um, Robocop and Total Recall and you've got all these kind of like other sci-fis quite graphically violent where where aliens are evil and they are perceived mm-hmm. as evil I prefer that idea that aliens mm-hmm. are perceived as evil I, I buy into that more that it's for their benefit or like mass destruction if you thought about it this way if they're were alien species that had got a handle on things like interstellar travel there's a good chance that they and this comes up all the time in sci-fi stories but it's books comics um or films or tv series if they were going to be the invasive species um they wouldn't there's a good chance that they wouldn't try and negotiate if they already had the upper hand yeah. in terms of weaponry and knowledge yeah. so there would be no need for them to be all cutesy and you know that sort of stuff so i guess when it comes back to the whole infiltration element that we see in they live you know there's a good chance that they would maybe do that for what purposes i'm not really sure but it it makes a lot of sense because but at the same time um as humans we're only going off of people sitting down and really having a hard think about this but also trying to rationalize it and compare it to things that have happened to us so during the cold war it was mostly fought by spies and information and you know discrediting and you know different nations and stuff like that i say different nations the ussr and the us so it was maybe maybe we get elements of that maybe aliens are coming here and it is literally just to observe and just be like oh so this is how they do things here let's never do that those are pretty good ideas and then they bugger off back to where they came from and you know they integrate the good parts and warn us warn their societies of the bad parts maybe it is just something like that or maybe we've got really really good natural resources and they want ipods ipods (laughs) god that was a that was a dated (laughs) reference good god hey if i if i came if i was an alien who didn't have a his music on some sort of traveling device that would last for hours <laughs> on end and I could watch movies on as well. I'd, I'd, I'd want to come here just for that. The idea of, of, of infiltration is definitely you know present in this movie. It's present in other mm. movies. But adapting as well, you know, are they... Are we an experiment in this film? Are they experimenting on us, controlling us? I mean, they do, obviously the resistance, they do mention things that they... It's almost like they're terraforming the planet slowly because... Mm-hmm. They talk about the rise in pollution and CO2 and different gases that would have been happening in the 80s anyway and happens, yeah. you know, mm-hmm. I mean, you, you just need to mention kind of global warming. But sci-fi is quite good at putting a spin on that and, and saying that these things are happening because they are changing our planet to suit what they are used to so that it's almost mm-hmm. like they can at one at one point turn around and just wipe everybody out and yeah. take everything over. I mean, to me, that's quite a classic kind of sci-fi convention then. Whether they are using us as an experiment or making us conform, there's lots of questions. What what are they getting out of it? But the film itself is set, you know, it's, it was made in 1988, so it, it, it's set in the 80s. And in terms of, like, the context... You've got Ronald Reagan in the White House. Poverty is at an all-time high. And Ronald Reagan, what he tried to do in his 
terms was he went back or he tried to move America back to a kind of 1950s lifestyle because he oh, he, right. he was very much kind of trying to get the, the idea of the American dream back and that kind of right. lifestyle. Now, the American dream is it's more like the American nightmare. It's more like a myth. So yeah. we can view this movie as political because the people that benefit in this movie are the wealthy. Mm-hmm. And that's who was benefiting. That's who benefits from capitalism. It's always the wealthy. Yeah, yeah. Okay. And it's those that are in power. So... I think this movie criticizes quite heavily that kind of regime. If we mm-hmm. if we look at the box office, right, the budget for the film is four million. Um, okay. But it made thirteen million, not as not nearly as much as it was projected to make. The movie was number one at the box office for one week, and then right. literally. Overnight, you couldn't find it in any cinemas. Oh, right. So, okay, that's quite interesting. So it made 13 million fairly quickly. Uh-huh. And it did find an audience. And then it disappeared. And there is actually, there's a conspiracy theory about this. If you've got a movie... Okay. If you've got a movie that is attacking your current system, your current president, then maybe they saw that as a bit of a threat and maybe they made it go away. Because there is there is an mm-hmm. argument that this movie would have been a lot more successful had it not suddenly dropped out of the cinemas. Yeah. Because it did, that it is did quite drop interesting. out really quickly. For it being a film about conspiracy theories and stuff as well, you know, that, that's rather appropriate it seems a bit odd and you can you you can sort of see why people would maybe think you know outside the box or you know along the lines of a conspiracy theory with stuff like that now i'm going to go on record first of all to say that i find that conspiracy theories really quite interesting i don't i I don't really believe very much in them because um i think i'm kind of literal or i definitely need to see you know a good amount of evidence for me for for myself to believe anything through and through i wouldn't say i was a sheep either but i definitely need to see proof of why lizard people are you know here and technically controlling us and stuff like that and i've personally never met a lizard person i mean have you is that even pc you know is is it actually wrong to call them lizard people well no no Um, i don't know (laughs) The, the, the thing is that it's like that idea of lizard people for those of you who don't know you know that that stems from another very big 80s tv show which was called v ah. oh okay where right. where people looked or the aliens that arrive v was a, a mini series in the 80s i think it starred mark singer and it also had robert england from who was freddy krueger oh now the uh-huh. the idea is that the aliens look human, but if mm-hmm. you actually peel off their face, they're a lizard underneath. Ah, uh, right. Okay. Okay. So that's where that comes. That's where from, that then. comes from. Right. Okay. But then that's that's that well, is a big sci-fi thing as well about you know. Yeah. There being lizard people well, hiding the, the, under the, in the sewers. <laughs> the the other thing is as well though, and I think one of the other reasons that I enjoy hearing conspiracy theories, not only because it offers an alternative way of thinking on certain subjects or whatever, is that sometimes conspiracy theories have actually come true. Yeah. Like the whole MK Ultra thing with the CIA and, you know, like giving psychedelics and trigger words and, you know, things like that. Like sometimes conspiracy theories have been proven to be right, which is, I think, why with the aid of the internet, 
more and more people have put you know a lot more time and energy and you know a lot more thought and believe in these things a lot more which can be good and bad because sometimes people are trying to spread the word of a conspiracy theory that they have because they have they have evidence like you know they actually do and maybe there are greater forces at work that are you know trying to silence them and stuff like that but then there's sometimes you know people who are bored and have nothing better to do so they start a rumor or a conspiracy theory and then people jump onto that and the people that started it want nothing more than just attention yeah so it's a very hard thing to gauge especially nowadays more than anything but this ties in nicely to the film where you have the sunglasses which tell the truth you see everything for what it is it's funny with conspiracy theories though because they they do they've always got a birth somewhere and Roddy Piper died a couple of years ago but he always said that they live was not a film he said it was a documentary mm. it's because Roddy Piper watched uh, a program which it talked about housewives getting given televisions in the 1950s in america and mm -hmm. they would watch a program and then they would go to the shop and buy bags of dog food when they didn't have a dog and they would return to their home and it was because they were watching these tv shows and there would be subliminal messages coming through that would tell them purchase this particular brand of dog food and they would go and do it he for years said that this was a real thing that this was a documentary actually it was a mockumentary that he watched it was a science fiction thing and it was Oh, it, was, right. it was shot in a way that was it was meant to look real. So, oh, Jesus. so Roddy Paper for years was actually kind of like campaigning that that this that this does happen that we we do look at billboards and there are messages underneath. But it was it was actually all oh, right. It we it, it just had the basis of, from science fiction originally. Yeah, again something made up for for entertainment. But I I, I love conspiracy theories as well. Everything. Mm. Everything from have we have we actually been to the moon to the the legend of, oh, of yeah. the Mothman. Oh yes. Oh God. Right. Quick. Just one very quick thing about the Mothman. If the the leading theory of the Mothman is that it's actually something called a harpy eagle, right? See if you look up the images of a harpy eagle, it'll give you nightmares, but it might also explain the whole Mothman thing okay. because this is a huge, horrible monster of a bird which is not far off the size of a human <laughs> and it obviously has wings and feathers and stuff so because i've listened to i can't remember if it was lore or if it might have just been stuff you should know but they'd done a podcast on the mothman and it was quite interesting and they offered up the best explanations for what it was and stuff but uh, yeah anyway yeah that, that was my quick quick plug about the mothman i'm going to to google that as soon as the the show's over i am just curious about the gross profit and the budget is low john carpenter mm -hmm. films they are not made for even tens of millions he is always kept budgets relatively small so he's brought this movie in at four million it has made its money back but mm -hmm. It is not grossed as much as what they, you know, because it, it's being released. Universal Pictures are distributing it in conjunction with Alive Movies, and they're an independent studio. And John Carpenter actually gets ownership over all these movies because, as long oh, okay. as long as he comes within his budget, then he gets ownership. To which which means that 
he's got 100% artistic authority, so nobody can mess with his movies. They, oh, they, right, they okay. They turn uh-huh. out exactly how he transpires them from, from page to screen, as long as he doesn't break his contract and go over budget, which he, he, he rarely, if ever, does. The film has made its money back, but I just really struggle with this idea that it was number one and then just disappeared. Disappeared, films, yeah. Films cause... don't tend to disappear. Mm. They tend to fall down charts over time. Yeah. Everybody goes to see it, loves it, and then it just goes away. Stops. Now, I'm not going to offer up my own conspiracy theory or any arguments against it, but it could very well have been that maybe for the time as well with what was going on, perhaps whoever was in charge in the White House of uh, media or whatever, you can tell that I'm completely clued up on all of this. But basically my thinking is that maybe it wasn't that it was to cover up any any truths that there are actually aliens um, among us and we can't upset them and, you know, they do keep the rich rich and all this sort of stuff. Maybe it's not anything like that, but maybe it's the sort of film that could potentially cause unrest Uh Um, and obviously when you are in the White House or in any kind of position of power the last thing you want is riots and if if you have absolutely no regard for human life then yeah they can be quite expensive and use up a lot of resources so nobody from a political standpoint I would imagine would want like a great deal of unrest and perhaps the thinking was that this film could cause that whether people took it literally and they were like, oh, you know, there are aliens and, you know, the government's keeping this from us or whether it was we have been lied to and there are subliminal messages and stuff like that. One way or another, it might have been just completely taken out purely because it's like, nah, this this film's going to cause issues. So let's get rid of it. Like, get out of cinemas. I honestly think that you're onto something because this idea that you make something against your supposed makers or your controllers Mm -hmm. if you're speaking out if you're having these kind of this political message that the people who are at the bottom are really at the bottom and they're getting nothing and then the people who are at the top are getting everything at the cost of the people at the bottom nobody wants to be told that nobody wants to kind of learn that so it is an attack against the Reagan administration. So it mm-hmm. does become quite... It's, it's fairly obvious that they're going after the people at the top in this movie. It does actually happen. And I guess this is just kind of more... It's more fuel for conspiracy theories, whether or not they prove to be true or yeah. not. But I always find it kind of ironic that definitely in the west world and or the western world i'm doing inverted commas with my fingers i don't think you can hear that in the microphone but um in the western world there's this great pride in like um freedom of expression and freedom of speech and you know things like that and then when you hear this happening like this sort of instance of um you know a, a film being taken out of the cinema because it goes against the current political climate or whoever's in charge that's the sort of in the Western world. That's something we deem that doesn't happen. You know that that happens in Eastern European countries. Yes. Or that happens in African countries. You know stuff like that. No, it happens literally everywhere. It's just we have more money, and you know people are. I don't know. There's maybe a, a wider middle class or whatever, but the same things politically happen in 
all sorts of countries. It doesn't matter where where you're from, um, you know. And it's that's not fair. You can't talk about freedom of speech and then say, oh, it's absolutely fine to say this, but you can't say that. Yes. And it's a matter of money and control that determines whether or not you dis you decide whether or not something like that happens. That's that's not fair. That's not on. If we if we look at the cast of the movie, I mean, small budget, small cast. Okay. Mm-hmm. We're not dealing with huge names. I mean, even even if Kurt Russell had taken on the role of Nada, you know, Kurt Russell, yes, he would have been a big name in the kind of eighties, but but still not necessarily a huge name because people would associate him again with just typical kind of Carpenter movies. So yeah. we've got mm-hmm. Roddy Piper as Nada. He's a wrestler. In the same year as making They Live, he also made another cult film, Hell Comes to Frogtown, which he <laughs> he basically has the ultimate male seed and he has to re <laughs> repopulate help repopulate the earth. Great cult movie. Oh, is it? It's available on Amazon Prime right now if anybody wants to go and check that out. Is that one of those blue films? Is that what they call it? <laughs> uh, there is nudity in it. Um, so, the, so Rory Power does get his shirt off in that like he does quite happily. Again, because I, like I keep getting sidetracked about the actual film itself. There is a there is a conspiracy theory to do with Roddy Piper's body in this movie. And he, he, right. he used to get asked this at comic book conventions, people thought that John Carpenter, the editing process, superimposed Roddy Piper's head onto somebody else's body. They didn't believe that that was his <laughs> body. They felt that he was actually too too big for the, the for this yeah. movie. But it was it is not. I mean, you can tell that it, it's not superimposed. And no, they no. wouldn't have had the technology really to have done it any kind of no. justice, especially if you look at the special effects for this film. But that that is genuine. People used to go up to him thinking, you know, that um, that wasn't your body. He's uh, like, yeah, oh, yeah, wow. it was. I mean, for first off, I'm a wrestler or a workout. I mean, what do you want? Piper plays Nada. He's a natural performer. He's got the lines. He's got the scars. He's got the face of a, a man who lived. You've got Keith David, who plays his best friend, Frank and Keith David mm-hmm. people will be familiar with for just even from other sci-fi movies like Pitch Black and The Chronicles of Riddick and he was in Carpenter's previous uh, sci-fi film The Thing actually The Thing mm-hmm. The Thing is Keith David's first movie and oh, right. he he found it really hard to get work after working for The Thing you would you would think that that was going to be a big breakout but actually he didn't work again until uh, they live and the part of frank was actually specifically written for keith david because john carpenter just had this idea in his head that he would bring something he would be able to 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 go against nada and stand with him toe to toe and then side by side yeah yeah
I don't like nobody following me unless I know why. Well, I don't join up with anybody until I see where he's going. John called me up and he said, listen, I wrote this character and I, you know, I have you in mind and uh, I'm going to send it to you. And he wanted to make sure that, you know, it wasn't stereotypical in any way. And, I, and when I read it, I guess I kind of understood what he meant by that. But I, I loved the story. And what, what attracted me to the part was Frank was, a, you know, I had, at that time, I think I had recently done some, uh, some stuff with the Homeless Foundation. Any one of us in this country, given a serious illness or an extended layoff, can become homeless. And there's always been a, a section of the society that are the working homeless. These are people who have jobs, but they can't afford housing, car, food, and all the things that we take generally for granted. So something has to be sacrificed. So, you know, Frank was one of those working homeless guys who would get a job, He'd, you know, live in a shanty town or a hotel room here and there when he could get one and send the money home to his family. I don't think that that story is as rare as we'd like to think it is. I mean, there are a lot of people who live like that. The name of the game is make it through life. Only everyone's out for themselves and looking to do you in at the same time. We've got Meg Foster, who people will remember for as Evelyn from the Masters of the Universe movie, who has got... She plays Holly Thompson. She's just got these amazing blue eyes. And mm -hmm. actually, when she played Evelyn, that was fantastic casting because when when you see her as Evelyn, she just has these witch-like, horrible, sinister eyes. And they're actually her eyes. They're just, mm. they're just brilliant yeah, blue. Yeah. And when you see them here, she actually just... Those piercing eyes make her come across as really quite innocent, but at the same time, yeah. you're kind of like, is there something more sinister behind them? And, and there is, because she's actually working with the aliens. So, spoiler! Mm -hmm. She 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 ends up dispatching Frank in an uh, off-screen death and taking down, uh, trying to take down Nada before he can take out the satellite which will reveal the truth about everything. You've mm -hmm. got Peter Jason who plays Gilbert. He's one of the resistance fighters who's trying to get the message out. Peter Jason is another John Carpenter regular. You've got Raymond St. Jacks who's actually a blind actor and he's okay. he was more widely renowned as a kind of TV performer. He was in the Green Berets but he plays the street preacher and mm -hmm. probably the only other recognisable face is George Buck Flower. And he's credited as Drifter, but he is a homeless man who ends up... We see him at the start and he's watching the resistance on TV. And the, the, he's watching their message break out. Then we see him at the end of the movie and he's in a tuxedo. And he's actually turned on the homeless people. Oh, yeah. And... He's sided with the aliens because he's gotten exactly what he wanted. What's wrong with having it good for a change? Now they're going to let us have it good if we just help them. They're going to leave us alone. Let us make some money. You can have a little taste of that good life too. Now I know you want it. Hell, everybody does. You do it to your own kind. What's the threat? We all sell out every day. Might as well be on the winning team. Most people will actually recognize Buck Flower as 
the homeless guy because he plays he actually plays a lot of homeless guys typecast that way <laughs> he is he's the homeless drifter fred in the back to the future movies that keeps oh, getting yeah. woken up by the car yeah yeah and he just stumbles about but <laughs> I mean, that's that's the kind of cast we're dealing with. So nobody really well known. But, you know, I, I look at like Meg Foster and those amazing eyes that she's got. And even though I've seen this movie like several times, like Meg, Meg Foster has played villains in her career. Like So she was evil, mm-hmm. evil in the Masters Universe. She's in a movie about a cult, which is called Ticket to Heaven. And she plays a cult leader. And mm-hmm. in this movie, she very much comes across as this kind of false hero. Because, I don't know, did, did you did you see that twist coming? That she was going to be working with them? It kind of, it almost twisted and then twisted again, if that makes sense. Because yeah. she, she's kind of taken hostage by Roddy Piper. And they go back to um, her... Uh, house because he's you know Roddy's trying to escape or Nada's trying to escape and then she like turns on him uh, but then she shows up at like a sort of resistance meeting but she was like a double double agent kind of yeah. or she was a double agent yeah, yeah aye. double agent um, so yeah so it seemed like she was actually with the resistance but just didn't realise and then turns out that she was working with them so she's not one of them but she's with them so I thought it was that's probably intentional because she might play quite a lot of villainous parts. So it looked like she would play a villainous part, and then twist it again and say, like, "No, she's actually this is a bit of a change for for um, Meg." Yes. Yeah. Meg Foster. Yeah. yeah. So we're gonna we're gonna twist it, and she's actually gonna help help our heroes, you know, get to where they need to get, and then they twist it again and you know turns out nope she is actually a villain she's she's one of them kind of thing or she's working for them so it looks like they're subverting her typecasting so it looks like we're going to make her a goodie but actually no we're not we're going to just keep her Mm -hmm. as actually what you so i mean did that work for you that twist i thought it was not too bad i mean this film obviously is you know it was made in the late 80s so it came out before a lot of other films that i've seen and i've seen that happen in other films sometimes it's a little bit better done than other films but that that one i thought was pretty i thought i was i actually thought she when she twisted or when it twisted originally and she was uh she seemed to be one of the resistance people uh one of the members of the resistance they i thought that was it so when it twisted i think i kind of started to get an idea when they when they met up at the um towards the end again i thought eh, she just kind of randomly appears doesn't she yeah and i thought there had to be a particular reason for that rather than just like oh you'll help us get to the satellite there had to be something else to it and it turns out there was so um yeah no that that worked for me um i thought that was good it definitely it i think it tried to add a little bit more to her character and i think it did a little bit but in the grand scheme of things i don't think she had a lot of room to perform if that makes sense she was kind of just like a victim and then it was kind of oh wait you're one of us oh you're one of the guys you know one of the resistance and then it was oh yeah i'll show you where you're going oh no i'm gonna kill you off screen and then that was kind of it so yeah. i don't know maybe 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 she could have had more room to do more with it i think that makes that makes perfect sense it, it, it is a fast turnaround from when you learn she's with the resistance then suddenly the resistance meeting's broken up the police are there we don't see her again, mm-hmm. and then she suddenly appears in the TV studio, and she's fine, 
and nobody questions mm. how she got there, where everybody else is. It's yeah. Holly, and then run to the roof, and then she. It, it, <laughs> it, it is very, very, very quick. I think it's funny that because you mentioned earlier on about about the slow pace at the start and setting everything mm-hmm. up and the long shots and actually the film is for such a small budget it's actually filmed in CinemaScope which gives you an incredibly wide lens so that oh, you yeah. can uh-huh. see everything and mm-hmm. that's what you pretty much open the movie with is lots of wide shots off Roddy Piper mm-hmm. I'm homeless I'm walking slowly. I'm this, I'm that. <laughs> and it, it, it just it shows you LA and those shots are very good at establishing setting, but not necessarily at helping pace. So yeah. the, it does feel very slow to begin with, but then perhaps at the end it's just bang 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 bang. It's too much too quick and we wanna perhaps yes rein it in a little bit so mm-hmm. I would, yeah i would say that there's definitely really room for improvement there even though we're dealing with a small budget i always like looking at the budgets because you've got an incredibly experienced kind of crew that work with john carpenter mm-hmm. the stunt coordinator is a guy called jeff amada now jeff amada has done the stunt coordinations for some of them biggest movies okay he's done batman versus superman he's done the fast and furious franchise he's done the born franchise he's done armageddon he's done lethal weapon okay from Dustal wow. dawn Waterworld. i mean every summer blockbuster you could think of mm-hmm. jeff amada did the stunt coordination for this movie he's done it for every john carpenter movie but the reason i want to mention jeff amada is that he plays almost every main alien in the movie oh okay and it's in one scene he actually jeff amada is five foot six and he is the stunt double because the thing is you know the he plays the police officer that roddy piper disarms and beats up and then shoots unfortunately Mm -hmm. the actor who plays the police officer he is uh, six foot two so in order to make sure the heights matched up uh, jeff abada actually when he plays the police officer when he's walking towards Roy, uh, nada uh, roddy piper's character uh, and he's getting beat up he actually had to walk on uh, a plank of wood uh, which was sitting on apple boxes because otherwise oh, you, wow. you would notice there was a massive difference in the heights <laughs> But the he also found it quite easy wearing the the masks the, oh, okay. the skulls with the silver eyes they were designed by John Carpenter's now wife Sandy King and mm-hmm. even though they look quite cheap they, I mean when they talk they don't really the mouth doesn't really move properly the teeth are on yeah. the outside it does look like someone's wearing a rubber a cheap rubber mask now the guy mm-hmm. the guy that actually applied that and designed it is a guy called uh Frank Carasosa he he did all the makeup uh for the Avengers movies for Knives Out for oh, X-Men. Jeez. I always find it interesting <laughs> when you look at the crew and who's working on yeah. these films, what they've actually uh-huh. done. So for, for as cheap wow. and as nasty as these alien masks kind of look, look at where these people are now and look at who they're working with. That's quite interesting. That is quite that's quite cool, actually. Yeah, yeah. I, I suppose everyone has to start somewhere. So, you know, clearly things improved and... Maybe they had more time or 
you know working more time and more experience and you know things like makeup or you know prosthetics or whatever their work improved as they went on or maybe they just worked in the industry so long that they were like well they've been in the industry working this long yeah. doing this particular job so let's get them to do it i think they they know how to handle the budgets they know what to yeah. do with very small amounts but also what what can be accomplished with if you give them the uh, the keys to the kingdom as well. I, I just love the people that are always the kind of backbone of these little films that we've looked at. They, yeah. These are now like the industry experts and that the people mm -hmm. go to. While, yeah, it's a product of its time and it might not look to, uh, good, it actually was probably really amazing at the time and really kind of groundbreaking yeah. mm -hmm. what what they were doing on such a kind of limited mm. budget the film itself lasted you know eight weeks they're filming in downtown la we've got a body count of 60 in this movie oh wow i think most of those bodies happen at the end when they they're just Braying their machine guns or their guns for the security guards and whatnot. Before I've asked you in previous podcasts to kind of guess what you think are the most expensive scenes in movies. Now you've learned a lot since then, Doug. Okay. Uh huh. So mm -hmm. you've experienced they live. You yep. now know that perhaps what is not doesn't seem the most expensive scene turns out to be the most expensive scene so let's open this part of the show out and let's get <laughs> let's get Doug's guess and opinion there are two scenes in this movie that are the most were the most expensive they were the they were the biggest financial costs on in terms of filming all oh, right okay you've got two to pick right okay was one of the most expensive scenes the talking interaction between Holly and Nada when they first go back to her house? Was that one of them? It's not, but I could see why no. you could guess Butter. that because that is yeah. when lots of dialogue come out. Okay, although mm -hmm. what I will say before I tell you, because I'm going to let you a second guess, okay? Okay, cool. That scene was very difficult to shoot because of the sugar glass wine bottle when oh. when nada goes back to holly's nada tries to convince holly of everything that's happening he tries to get her to put the sunglasses mm -hmm. on he stands up walks towards the window he's a bit groggy because wearing the sunglasses for long periods of time can affect your head and holly mm -hmm. spins on the spot she because she, she's picked up a wine bottle she hits him over the head he flies out the window and then trundles down <laughs> That stunt was actually, that wasn't a problem. But Meg Foster, no matter how many times she hit Roddy Piper, the sugar bottle wouldn't break. Now, when I say sugar, oh, they, they, they make, when, whenever you've got something made of glass and if you have to go through it, jump through a window, or if you have to get something, you know, a, a bottle smashed against your head or a jug or a glass, they're made of sugar glass, which breaks mm -hmm. very, very easily, but it still has the same look when you add the sound effects of, of glass smashing and breaking. She kept on hitting him with this sugar glass wine bottle and she hit him three times and it didn't break. Oh, and Roddy Piper oh, actually dear. took Meg Foster aside and he said to her, he says, look, I'm a big guy. I can take it. Just hit me. <laughs> and then they filmed take four and she hit him 
and it's smashed. And Roddy Piper has said on numerous times, Meg Foster knows how to hit. He says that he's been <laughs> he's been slapped and punched by Andre the Giant. Oh God! Oh wow! And that fourth <laughs> take when she hit him with that sugar glass bottle, and it finally yeah. broke. He felt it. I thought I killed you. I thought so too. I didn't know. I'm so sorry. Working with Ronnie was a joy because his instincts are pure. And he was every man in that instance because he perhaps was new to acting. And yet he did have a professional appearance background. But playing Nada was perfection. It was just perfection. Just keep driving. Where am I going? You married. Yes. Please don't lie to me. When Holly encounters the character of Nada, there is a charm about him, regardless of the fact that she might be frightened as well. And she keeps drawing on her reserve. I mean, she's a bit of a powerhouse. I was to hit Roddy with what was called a sugar bottle. Every time I went to bonk him with it, it was very heavy, so I go bonk and it wouldn't break. You know, and then I go, go on and hit me. And I go, Bonk Carter and it wouldn't break. And he said, you just gotta let go with it, man. Take a look, I'll show you. Cut. Yeah. God damn, that was great. All right, Rod. <laughs> so not that scene, but actually still a cool story about a difficult scene to, to shoot. You've got, mm -hmm. you've, got, you've got another guess because it's two scenes and I, I still haven't told you what uh, they are yet. But. Is one of them the alleyway scene? Is it the, the fight in the alleyway? Is that, it's, is that one of the expensive ones? That's not one of the expensive ones. Damn it. That actually was quite a straightforward one to do because... Oh God, was it? They, they actually rehearsed it for uh, four weeks. So Je Jeff, wow. Jeff Amada worked because there's no stunt doubles used in that scene at all that is right. piper and keith david fighting the whole scene they rehearsed it for four weeks they lined the alleyway with a, a rubber mat and then they mm -hmm. they used paint to blend it into the concrete because they worked on it every day for four weeks they had it down. There was only one time where they actually properly hit each other. Uh, and again, it's, it's kind of like the Meg Foster scene. So there's a scene where Nada is up against the brick wall and Frank is to kind of faint a punch and then hit him with kind of both arms together. And mm -hmm. it wasn't, it, did, it looked like there was too big a miss when they were filming it. So Piper mm -hmm. just told Keith David hit me, and that's what he did. It, unfortunately, it's not it's not that scene. Okay, so put your your misery. Let me have it. Okay, so the first scene, the second most expensive shot was the opening shot with the train passing by to reveal Nada standing under the bridge. Right. So that that cost twelve thousand dollars. That was problematic because the first time they shot it, the train driver took the wrong track so they had to oh, no. they had to reset everything um and they had to oh, do it again no. but yeah it 12 th for a train rolling past that was twelve thousand dollars jeez oh and it it's what wow. it's a few seconds long yeah okay oh wow 
the most expensive scene in the whole movie is the supermarket scene through the sunglasses. Oh yeah. Uh -huh. Because you had to have every so every product on a shelf was five deep. Yeah. Oh god, yeah. Every single one of them had to have a label on it that said obey or sleep or submit or marry and breed. Yeah. So that so that whole supermarket and again, we only see it through the sunglasses maybe for about 10 seconds. Mm -hmm. But they, they, they kitted out that whole supermarket with products. So it wasn't like, it wasn't, it wasn't the first product that had a label. It was every single one. All of them. All of them. Wow. All the shelves. And some of them you don't even see. But that, that was the, that's the most expensive yeah, shop. Yeah. Does that surprise you? It does a little bit, but it kind of makes sense now that you explain it. Um, now that I think about it, it makes yeah, it totally makes perfect sense. But uh, just because I've uh, I've been led down the wrong path with uh, <laughs> what I would think is an expensive scene, turns out it isn't. But uh, I love leading yeah, you down wow. that path. It's great fun for me. <laughs> the ending of the movie. Mm. We've talked about the twist. Frank gets shot by me by. Holly, played by Meg Foster. Nada makes it to the roof of the television television studio that is sending out the signal that stops people seeing the aliens and it stops people seeing the obvious messages. Is it a bleak ending because Nada dies or is it a heroic ending? I would probably go more with heroic because usually with films, either that came before at the same time or after they live usually those kind of films have a really bleak ending and you know when the protagonist dies or whatever and things things usually continue on the way they are like so you are you're given the problem you're given what the hero is trying to fight against um, but then nothing changes those are bleak endings but in this instance nada does die but it is very much for the benefit of everyone that everyone sees the aliens for what they are and see sees the billboards and the the advertisements and all the sorts all the other things everyone sees it for what they actually are it, it did it did claim both the protagonists lives i suppose but it was for kind of the greater good um very much so the greater good so i, I would go with heroic what about you what would you say? I would go with Heroic as well. Yeah. For me, Piper as Nada, he rises to the occasion and he becomes an everyday man's hero. Mm -hmm. But he still remains quite dignified, I think, because he's focused in his mission. Reveal the truth. And he, he, he reveals the truth to Frank. He doesn't get the truth to Holly. She finds that out off screen, supposedly by herself. But he gets the mm -hmm. truth to somebody else and that leads them to the kind of resistance and that takes him to his moment where he can die with dignity i don't think he mm -hmm. he needs to survive i think he's done what he was destined to do which is reveal the truth to the world and let the world deal with it yeah mm -hmm. while some people i definitely think they'll they'll read the ending as being oh what the hero dies that's really yeah. dark that's really bleak you know but i enjoy that kind of sacrifice that he's done i mean you could you could mm -hmm. you could say the same with iron man i mean, yeah, I mean true. when i saw that at the cinema there was 
girls in front of me who were inconsolable when he went, <laughs> when he clicked his fingers and went, I am Iron Man. And he did, made yeah. the ultimate sacrifice. I would have actually liked if more people had died in that movie. That's just me. <laughs> that idea that he gives himself for the greater good. I, I, I really mm -hmm. responded to that. And I thought it was a... It was a perfect ending. Just get into like favorite parts. What what for for you going in? What stood mm -hmm. out? The my favorite part was actually Roddy Piper going through the window with uh, <laughs> after the sugar glass, purely because of how absolutely ridiculous it was. If you actually hit someone in the back of the head with a bottle, they would go down. Yeah, they wouldn't go <laughs> flying out of a window and then rolling down. A good two hundred meters down a dark <laughs> hill, and then just dust themselves off, and then try and hide from the cops. I thought that was hysterical, <laughs> and I was inconsolable because I was laughing so hard. <laughs> so that was my favorite bit, based on just complete ridiculousness. That was my favorite part. What What was yours? You didn't necessarily like it, but okay, the alleyway fight. <laughs> the alleyway fight lasts for five minutes and 30 seconds it oh is totally obscene and over the top <laughs> and when you think that it's finished it just keeps on going <laughs> i honestly i do not get bored of watching that alleyway fight and it is <laughs> it is ranked as seventh of the 20 greatest fights in movie history <laughs> according to rotten tomatoes they did a they did a really yeah they did a poll on on greatest fight scenes ever and oh, nada wow. versus frank five and a half minutes <laughs> comes in at number seven it's when nada picks up the two by four and swings at Frank and puts it through the window of the car. Then, yeah. then looks at you know because he because he's so enraged at this point because all he wants his friend to do is put the goddamn sunglasses on. That's it. The glasses. And he won't. He puts the two by four through the car window, and then he looks at it and he's like, "Oh my god!" And he throws it immediately. Frank has picked up a glass bottle. And he smashes it and it just crumbles to smithereens. At which point, Nada bursts out laughing and Frank runs at him and it just, they keep on fighting some more. So it's funny, it's violent, it's over the top. I just really like it. And it, and it makes no sense. Just put on yeah. the sunglasses. Just put them on. Originally, that fight scene in the script is 20 seconds long. Okay? <laughs> now, they did not expand that for like runtime or anything like that. It just happened naturally. The fight just got bigger and bigger and funnier and funnier. And for me, that's my favourite part, is the alleyway fight scene. Wow, it was only supposed to be 20 seconds. Yeah. And it ran for five, five and a bit minutes. We have sound bites in our show. I feel like I should just have a five and a half minute soundbite of the fight. But do you know what? I'm not I'm not gonna do that. People who've seen it, hopefully you've enjoyed it. 
If you haven't seen it, for God's sake, why are you listening to this podcast, people? Get it watched. <laughs> At least Google They Live fight scene and watch it on YouTube. Dislikes. Yep. What what didn't you like? Originally, I was actually going to say the alleyway fight scene. No, you can. Because now, now, with your guns. No, I know, but no, this is it. This is it. Because you pointed out just how ridiculous and over the top it is and it was it was quite laughable when laura and i were watching it we were laughing because uh-huh. every time you thought it right that's it they're done you know they're gonna shake hands and either go their separate ways or you know he's gonna put on the glasses they just start fighting again yes they just keep going they just continuously keep fighting and it is completely ridiculous and i think it is funny for that reason and don't get me wrong you know it's it's pretty decent coordination as well because Anytime you watch interviews or anything to do with films with fight scenes, it is very deeply choreographed and it's always described as being like a really intricate dance. Yeah. And now, like you mentioned before, it takes like it took the guys like four weeks to practice and rehearse the entire thing before doing it in front of the camera properly. So I don't think it can be that anymore because it's as ridiculous as it is. There is a lot of you know work and effort put in, and you know I just find it ridiculous because of how long it went on. So oh, you're very generous. For a bit that I probably didn't like, and I have it has been brought up is probably just how long it took to get going at the start. It's not a massive thing. But it also didn't really add anything for me. Like I, I, I very quickly picked up that he was homeless and just looking for work and maybe a bit of a drifter. Yeah. And then it just kept that. That just kept going. That he was homeless and wearing denim and living in a shanty town. And oh, by the way, he was homeless and he was looking for work. And <laughs> by the way, he's still homeless and he's looking off into the distance now. But he's still homeless. <laughs> And it just kept, it just kept on kind of going. Um, so that's probably that's probably the bit I liked the least was just how long it kind of t- took to really kind of get going. What 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 about you? What 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 didn't you like? Even though they probably looked good at the time, they haven't aged very well, and it's the rubber-looking masks of the aliens. Now, mm. for for mm-hmm. easiness, the mask itself, even though it is put on uh, as a prosthetic, as, as kind of, and it's kind of layered in and hidden with other makeup, for easiness, the main part of it, the main piece of it is just this kind of mask that the actor puts on. And it, it does look like some sort of cheap Halloween mask. Yeah. Now, don't get me wrong, part of me likes the cheapness of some special effects Uh but it's when they talk you know they're all having to crane their neck to a certain angle to make the rubber mask move and the mouth open and i think that when you see still images of the mask either actors like jeff amada in the makeup chair i think it looks much more scary and sinister Mm -hmm. but then when you see it in black and white Mm -hmm. and the rubber seams and things like that and you just see all the face on film it just does not look good today it just looks cheap Mm -hmm. and i've i've seen better masks in poundland (laughs) for anyone that's uh that's listening abroad poundland is literally just like a is is that would it be a thrift store or is a thrift store more of a kind of is that more of a charity shop i I don't don't know thrift store is more like a charity shop right okay well this is just basically like a super budget low pound land like a a, a pound is not a crazy amount of money here in the united kingdoms and uh yeah 
you, you tend to get some good stuff for a pound and you get some absolute crap for a pound as well. And these Halloween masks that made it into the film would probably be in there. Uh, I bet they wished that the 99p store existed in 1988. <laughs> we could have saved a fortune on our oh, budget! <laughs> Just before we get to our, our verdicts for the film, Okay. Mm -hmm. uh, I remembered mm -hmm. the, the name of that that mockumentary that I mentioned earlier on. Mm. So it's the 1954 Brunswick Affair. Uh, this is a, a mockumentary which features subliminal messages being broadcast on TV to unknowing American housewives who then go out and purchase vast quantities of unnecessary items in order to drive forward a kind of capitalist-driven profit-driven, money-driven society. So it, it wasn't real, but uh, Piper actually thought he was watching... Uh, hmm. He thought it was a documentary, but it was actually a, a mockumentary. Did you notice the guards at the television station were communicating through very odd-looking radios with little flashing lights... Yeah, and they look. They, I thought when I watched this, they looked incredibly familiar. Is it from like Back to the Future or like Ghostbusters or something? Second one, they're so Ghostbusters. Right, so Egon takes measurements through a PKE meter, and that's how he oh, yeah. detects ghosts. They're using the PKA meters from Ghostbusters as radios. They're the alien radios. Nice. Reusing stuff. One last thing I'll say, because the thing is, I, I really kind of, I want to end with this quote. So I will say that, obviously you, you mentioned about kind of Roddy Piper and his, uh, his performance and stuff. And wrestlers, they are expected to be able to ablib on the spot again you know they they do these things where they walk into a ring and they speak to thousands of people and they've got to diss their opponent and mm -hmm. they've both got to be kind of like comical but also threatening and mm -hmm. wrestlers write a lot of their own material but then it's you know they they have to remember it and they have to ablib on the spot as well and there is two things that we're going to come back to at the close of the show. But I just want to draw attention okay. that uh, John Carpenter has went on record and said that before they started filming, Piper handed John Carpenter his wrestling notebook. And in that notebook were all his quips, all his oh, yeah. one-liners. And John Carpenter read through it and there was two that jumped out at him immediately. 100% written by Roddy Piper he can't take any credit for it and they make it mm -hmm. into the movie they have been so influential that actually one of them and again I don't want to say it right this second I know I'm very good at that saying we'll, we'll talk about this again later on but I just I, I, I feel <laughs> we need to end with these quotes you know they're, they're, sure. they're a more suitable ending point but these quotes that Piper wrote have been so influential that they became the main thing that Duke Nukem said in the, in the, oh. in the computer game uh, mm -hmm. Duke Nukem and, and Duke Nukem 3D. People for years always thought that they came from Duke Nukem and that it was those writers. Oh. No, it was the, they were directly taken 
from they live and from and actually the credit goes to Rowdy Roddy Piper. Wow, I did not know that. Give me your rating, Duke. Tell us what you use for ratings, if we've forgotten. Yep, I use the Infinity Stones from the Infinity Gauntlet, the Avengers film. So my rating's out of six. I'm going to give this a very middle-of-the-road three. Um, oh, I think... That, I didn't expect that. That seems no, generous you for expected you. Less. I expected less. <laughs> I expected less. Have you changed that? No. <laughs> No, no. Um, like like I said, I think I said at the start, even though I thought this was a so bad it's good kind of film, I always thought the concept was quite interesting. I always quite liked the idea of being able to infallibly see things for what they actually are. Like there's no opinion, there's no influence. It is, this is what you actually see and this is what's actually going on. Nobody's twisting it. This is undoubtedly... undoubtedly the truth and I always, I've always kind of liked that idea now more than ever when people display their own opinions as fact and you know mislead whether it's at a political level or a social, social media level so I always liked the idea of this film I always thought it was a good idea stunt work was pretty good stunt work was really quite good in some um, aspects the film made me laugh my ass off a couple of times as well it's definitely a film I think I would probably enjoy in the company of my mates with many alcoholic beverages and have a bit more of a laugh about it. And then obviously once when it gets to that point in the night where you've had way too much to drink and you do get all political, then you can start talking about the more kind of deep seated political messages that the film had. Yeah, I'm gonna I would give it three out of six. What what would how many how many chainsaws would you give it? So we know we're listeners hopefully know by this point that I use a chainsaw system mainly because of the horror is my favourite genre Evil Dead and Ash and the influence of chainsaws I have a frame picture of Ash and his chainsaw in my living room just to show you how sad I am I am going all out and I'm giving this 5 out of 5 chainsaws and that might shock some people <laughs> okay but what I will say is that it's got a great performance from Roddy Piper a bit ropey in areas but we have to remember he is mm-hmm. he was a professional wrestler I think it's got it deals with what's happening in society very well I like the whole conspiracy theories that it draws out of people because I do like a good conspiracy theory but above all else I just love again it's it's a product of the 80s it feels and breathes Mm -hmm. the 80s and this idea of again going back to practical effect we've got the cheap looking makeup masks but in order to fool us as well when Piper as Nada puts on the glasses for the first time and the billboard changes to black and white in the message. That's mm-hmm. that's a matte painting. That's a giant painting by Jim Danforth. And actually, wow. the advert of a, I think it's a lady drinking soda or she's advertising holiday or something when uh-huh. he takes the glasses off that also is a painting it's a it's a photo realistic matte painting and that for oh, years right. has been an easy way of fooling audiences into these are the backgrounds so like the so like if you're filming hmm. on a set and your your set only goes so far they'll do a giant matte painting to show that the city goes off further into the distance but actually if you were to just walk you would then hit 
the painting. Oh, right, yeah, yeah. So it's called photorealism. I love these little practical effects that, that help fuel us as an audience. And, you know, mm-hmm. the, 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 sh- the long shot that shows stay asleep, buy, watch TV, consume, obey, sleep eight hours. You know, that is a painting that I'm looking at. But it doesn't look like a painting. It looks like a functioning, working, hidden city. And yeah, absolutely. Honestly, I I love stuff like that, and I love this movie. I've, I've I've seen it now several times, and I'm going all out. I've got petrol in all <laughs> five. They're buzzing away. Okay, so Rotten Tomatoes. Um, the critics actually gave this eighty six percent, and the audience gave it. Uh, uh, 79% uh, the critics said uh, They Live is an underrated genre film from John Carpenter which is yeah that's pretty spot on um, it very much is it's a you know it's a sci-fi see when I think horror films I always think something maybe jump scare or something that makes you feel really uneasy and I didn't really get that very much a sci-fi film yeah but I didn't personally get a great deal of horror no, kind of coming no. through I wasn't overly scared yes but and th- things aren't necessarily graphic as well because, I mean, even when Frank gets shot, we don't see it. Yeah. We cut and we hear it, but there's no blood. And people get sprayed with bullets but fall over and there's no blood. So there's there's not even necessarily a kind of graphically violent horror hiding here. I think the only thing mm. you could argue that comes across as, as horror is the actual masks. But even even then, you don't really see them as they were as they are supposed to be intended. For which for me is yeah. in color, and that's in the final seconds. Yeah, no, you're absolutely absolutely bang. So de- on. definitely um, underrated in terms of being a, a sci-fi movie. Yeah, absolutely. Who else said what? So we're still dealing with pre-publication, so nothing from Empire this week. If we look at the Chicago Reader, we have Jonathan Rosenbaum who said Carpenter's wit and storytelling craft make this fun and watchable. Although the script takes a number of unfortunate shortcuts and the possibilities inherent in the movie's central concept are explored only curiously. I think what he is meaning there is that perhaps what we talked about in terms of maybe the shift in Meg Foster's character or mm, yeah. it being a shortcut or not necessarily delving too deep into the world behind the aliens. Where do they go? Yeah, Where true. do they come from? Why are they doing this? Do we need it? It's an hour and a half movie. Perhaps again, if the pacing at the start had been taken care of, we had less long shots of homelessness. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so because... Duke got that he was homeless pretty much from from the first shot. So I think I can see that good script, good concept, room for improvement. I think that's where Chicago Mm -hmm. Reader is coming from. But he's not completely condemning it. And I think that the, the, the very positive rating from Rotten Tomatoes that you mentioned, the 86%, kind of backs that up there. Mm hmm. Yeah. Great, enjoyable, but room for improvement. That's pretty bang on. The Boston Globe, Jay Carr from the Boston Globe said, A sci-fi horror comedy, or as a sci-fi horror comedy, they live 
with its wake-up call to the world is an it is in a class with Terminator and Robocop. I would agree with that to an extent. I think Terminator and Robocop well, when I see I when I think Terminator I'm thinking Terminator 2 so maybe 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 more Terminator and Robocop rather than Terminator 2. So yeah, I would probably agree with that more so in terms of probably production quality as well as storytelling. I think Terminator and Robocop maybe have, you know, it was really one of the only things I had like a major issue with, but it was, I think Terminator and Robocop just have slightly better pacing in comparison to They Live, but I think They Live had more of a message rather than the other two. I think the other two were kind of more just sort of sci-fi, maybe action films, whereas they have had more of a, a prominent message that it was trying to get across. Yeah, this one's quite difficult for me because I would use the term groundbreaking when I think of Terminator and Robocop. I would rate Robocop 5 out of 5. Terminator, I would rate 5 out of 5. I think that, again, very much products of the 80s. Robocop does have this kind of message about capitalism that is poking fun at. Terminator, kind of less so. But they were ground breaking in the terms of the effects, the careers that were going to transpire out of the films. I'm not sure I would put They Live in the same class, even though I have rated it 5 out of 5. I mean, I rate it 5 out of 5 for different reasons. I'm not sure I would say They Live is, I wouldn't use the term groundbreaking. It certainly is still a 5 star movie for me, but for different, mm. for very different reasons. And I yeah. and I love it for very different reasons, but I wouldn't classify. I wouldn't put it in that in that category. I'd right. I'd put it in yeah. with the thing or an American Werewolf in London. No, that's that's I see exactly where you're coming from. I totally get you. Finally, we have the Washington Post and Richard Harrington, who says it's just John Carpenter as usual trying to dig deep with a toy shovel. The plot for They Live is full of black holes. The acting is wretched. The effects are second rate. In fact, the whole thing is so preposterous it makes V look like masterpiece theatre. So I mentioned what V was earlier on. V was a mini TV series where humans are aliens who um, look like humans. They're actually lizards underneath when their when their mask is pulled off. I've seen V. I've seen the special effects in V. The special effects in V are atrocious, even for their time. <laughs> and I think that Richard Harrington needs to take a strong look at what John Carpenter was doing with the very limited budget that he has. Yeah. And there are not a lot of effects. I think the acting is not wretched. I think it's genuine. Now, I think there's a there's a difference mm -hmm. between realism or method or good acting, but mm -hmm. I think that the acting is genuine. I think yeah. I think mm -hmm. we get what we get from a script that is fun, introduces a controlling power. They work really well with what they've got. You've got some lovely ab libs, which will come to shortly. I think Richard Harrington is being a little bit harsh. To compare it to V, to even say that V, if you were to put them side by side, would look like Masterpiece Theatre, I think is very unfair. Yeah, no, I would agree with that. Going into the final part of the show, 
we are talking about recommendations and mm -hmm. if you are a fan of John Carpenter, John Carpenter has many films that have become cult classics and people would argue are underrated and certainly it is nowhere near as good as they live. It still is quite fun, again, for all the wrong reasons. It features yeah. probably the least famous Baldwin brother, which is which is Daniel Baldwin, but it does have James Woods as Jack Crow. I mean, come on. Who doesn't want to watch a movie with a hero vampire hunter called Jack Crow? 1998, John Carpenter's Vampires. There is great fun to be had and there is tons and tons of over-the-top gore and prolonged death sequences. <laughs> Love it. Brilliant. What have you got to recommend in terms of any any films or or TV series? I would I would probably recommend and you know I need to I need my I need to go back myself and watch a lot more kind of John Carpenter films, but I really did enjoy the thing and I watched the remake remake, the one that came out in, oh God, was it 2010 or something like that? Or maybe 2011? I can't remember. 2011. Uh, was it 2011? Yeah. Now, I've, I've watched that one. It's fine. It's a very clear remake. Not far off scene for scene, but maybe just kind of brought up in terms of, you know, the timeline. You know, it, I think it's supposed to take place in about 2011, so it kind of feels like it does but the john carpenter it's, it's actually it's a prequel is a it's a prequel yes. right okay but the, right. But, you, but you actually are right in that it does it does do a lot of scene for scene and yeah the that's one of the issues also you're using cgi instead of the amazing practical effects that yeah. Rob Button did yeah exactly um so yeah if um if you're wanting a, a proper education on a good horror I would I would and I mean I'm not an expert either Dave's the guy to go to if you're wanting good horror recommendations speak to pics but uh, I really enjoyed the original thing the John Carpenter one I thought it was really really good so I'd recommend that and um I, I really wish I'd I think I think the podcast is called the conspiracy guys I think that's quite a popular one and they have believe it or not even lengthier podcasts than ourselves <laughs> and they <laughs> they delve they delve into um all sorts of conspiracy theories and you know things that could cause conspiracy theories like the reasons they might have come about ways to debunk them how they might not have been debunked and you know they go really really down the rabbit hole but it's definitely worth giving them a listen as well so um yeah those are those are my recommendations awesome I would also like to give a shout out to what we do in the Shadows Series 2, which is available oh, yes. on BBC iPlayer. It has been, for me, just as good as the first series. We've mentioned the, the film in previous podcasts, but uh, I, I think in particular, Matt Berry got to live a boyhood dream <laughs> in one scene where he faced off against another vampire played by Mark Hamill, who was trying to recuperate a debt from him. Hiding out as a bartender, he <laughs> fights Mark Hamill, not necessarily with a lightsaber, but with a pool cue. But I can just imagine the on set as they were practicing 
<laughs> Matt Berry was going. <laughs> you'd have, you'd be having breath. way too much fun. <laughs> I know. So yeah, just uh, a great, another great season from the people behind what we do in the shadows. Creator Jermaine Clement and. Taika Waititi. In terms of podcasts, I stumbled across something really interesting. I, qu- I quite like my history and this is probably going to sound a little bit bizarre, but in the 1980s, one of the biggest por- uh, hardcore pornography actresses on the on the planet was a girl performing under the name of Tracy Lords. Her, her real name is uh, uh, Norma Coombs. And she was performing in the adult industry underage uh, she was using a fake id she was actually 15 years old and it led to one of the biggest scandals in the adult industry and this podcast is called once upon a time in the valley and it uses interviews with tracy lords it uses excerpts from her autobiography and it also the people who who run the podcast they also talk to people in the adult industry and get their kind of views on the effects that it had. So you get a lot of history and a lot of context. Lords lived a very, very troubled and messed up kind of life. And it is really interesting to see the kind of dark, seedy world that is the adult industry in this kind of light. So I, I find it very entertaining. Mm-hmm. Mm. Cool. On that note, we come to the end of our podcast. What better way than to end this current podcast on a quote just before we say those quotes. A reminder that we we do have a shop available on redbubble.com. If you type in PIKI05 or even Dugan Picks, you'll get access to our, our shop. We have various items tailored around each individual episode if you want to subscribe comment tell us what you think of the show please do so if you want to put in any recommendations for us to check out and possibly review in a future episode you can get in contact with us at piki05 at yahoo.co.uk that's also available on our soundcloud page and we look forward to anybody that touches base, tells us what they think of the show, uh, or wants to hear our random thoughts about something new that perhaps we haven't seen, or even revisiting something we have seen. Because the thing is that mm-hmm. being the ultimate geek that I am, I have <laughs> seen quite a lot of stuff. So I, I always <laughs> like the challenge. Doug, what have you got for your outro quote? I feel... I feel We've now been building up to to our <laughs> ablibs from the legend that is Rowdy Roddy Paper. What have you got for us? Life's a bitch, and she's back in heat. Nice. <laughs> I can only go with one, and I stole it from Duke. There was no way he was getting this. The finest line in the movie, the line that led to popular video game franchise written by the master himself Roddy Piper I have come here to kick ass and chew bubblegum and I'm all out of bubblegum thanks for listening guys until next time take it easy picks out cheers guys take out <laughs> <laughs>